How's everybody doing? Test, test, we good? All right. What'd you say? <laughs> All right, so tonight we are going to cover the book of Esther. I apologize, I did not make an outline or a study guide. Sorry about that. Um, but can any of y'all tell me anything about Esther? Who's ever heard of Esther or studied about Esther? Other than VeggieTales? <laughs> so everybody's seen VeggieTales. Well, this is going to be a little different than the VeggieTale version of Esther. So um, this, this book is, was from the same time frame as Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, y'all talked about those the past couple of weeks. Um, it's, Nehemiah is actually after Ezra a little bit time-wise. Uh, the king that y'all talked about last week, um, Artaxerxes, is actually the son of the king that I'm going to talk about tonight. Um, there's a, a lot of interesting facts about Esther. Uh, how many times is God mentioned in Esther? Like, th this is a book of the Bible. It's about God. All scripture points to Christ. So how many times is God mentioned in the book of Esther, y'all think? Anybody know? Zero. So... God is mentioned not one time in the book of Esther. And the king that we're going to talk about is mentioned 175 times. Um, so when we're going through the book, I want y'all to kind of listen, pay attention, and see if you can see where God is in this story, even though he's not mentioned. Uh, the book of Esther was written after the 70 years of captivity. Um, and it's also named after a only done one other time. Uh, women were not usually celebrated back in those times. So in the book of Esther, we have four main characters. Uh, we've got Xerxes, or uh, in a lot of the versions, y Bible, the, the Bibles y'all are going to read, his name is um, Ahasuerus is his name. But I'm going to refer to him as Xerxes because it's easier to say. Um, so we're also going to meet uh, Mordecai, Esther, and Haman in this story. They're all kind of the main characters. So chapter 1 opens up in the third year of King Xerxes' reign, and he is throwing a six-month feast for his officials, his servants, his armies, his nobles, and his governors, basically everybody that's around him. This party was to show off his riches and his royal glory and his splendor and pomp of his greatness. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 or that was verses 3 and 4, chapter 1. That's where we find all that. Again, this, this party or feast that he is throwing took 180 days, so six months. This was a six-month-long party. So if it takes him six months to show off his glory, would y'all think that he's probably arrogant? He's probably an arrogant king, thinks he's great. Um, and it says that some suggest that this six-month feast was also a military campaign against Greece because he eventually fights Greece, so they think that this is a planning party for that. So after the 180-day feast, he immediately throws a seven-day party. Okay, so we've been partying and going through all this for 180 days. At the end of that, we're going to throw another seven-day party. So somebody, I would like for you all to read verses 5 through 8 of chapter 1. Uh, Lydia, or who said that? Casey, Lydia, I'll let you get the next one. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden and courtyard of the royal palace for all the people. From the greatest to the least, 
who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and violet linen hanging, hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother crow, and precious stones. Beverages were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowered freely according to the king's bounty and no retaint nor restraint was placed on the drink. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve as much as a person wanted. All right, so in my version, uh, verse 8 says, and drinking was according to an edict. So I'm going to ask you all in a second what an edict is, but you all can see from these verses he has gold and silver couches, all of their drinks are served in gold cups. He has precious stones. That's his floor that they're walking on. So he is showing you how great and how rich he is. Um, so in verse 8, it mentions an edict. So do y'all know what an edict is? So an edict is um, it's a law written by the king that cannot be overturned. Not even by the king. So the king can write it, but then once he writes it, he can do nothing to change it. So he writes this edict um, that says, hey, everybody can get drunk. Do what you want to do. It's the law. You can do whatever you want to do. And you, you can kind of see that here in a second that this is going to get out of hand a little bit. So everybody gets drunk. And drunk people make wise decisions, don't they? Yeah. yeah. So, so we're sitting here thinking... They're partying for seven days. All they're doing is drinking. They're drunk. Um, so what could go wrong, right? Well, yeah, everything. So at this time in verses 10 and 11, um, the king's heart is merry with wine, and he commands some of his eunuchs. And a eunuch is just a servant of the king. And he, he commands his eunuchs to go get Queen Vashti and tells her to wear her warrior crown. Now, Vashti was very beautiful. She was easy on the eyes, and so King Xerxes says, go get my queen. I want to show her off to all these people. Uh, and so, like, some commentaries suggest um, that I read that even suggest that, that the crown, he told her to wear her crown, but maybe that was the only thing that she was told to wear. So you can kind of see where this is going. So, well, the queen, she tells him no. She's like... I'm not coming to your party with a bunch of drunken men. I'm just not doing it. So the servants give the king this message, and the king gets furious. Scripture does not give us a reason for her not going to, to before the king. But the commentary in my Bible says that she may, have, she may have been asked to do lewd acts in front of the drunken men, or that she may have even been pregnant with Xerxes' son. Uh, so whatever the reason that she refuses to go, the king's advisors, or I'm sorry, she refuses to go. All right, so whatever the reason is. Um, and it says the king's advisors make him think that Vashti was not, has not just wronged him, but she has wronged all the officials. And they were scared that this word, or this would get out and be, be made known to all the women, causing them to look on their own husbands with contempt, and contempt is just disrespect. Uh, his advisors talk him into putting out a decree or an edict saying that Queen Vashti can never come before the king 
and that all women, high and low, must honor their husbands. This decree was sent to every province, to the people, and, and it was sent out in the, everybody's own language. The province, uh, I think there was, he was in control of 127 provinces, so he had a pretty big area that he was king over. Uh, and it says, King Xerxes has a violent temper, and this was displayed in the way he treated the queen. So I've got like a little funny side story on about how irrational this king is. It says that he built a bridge between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. They needed the bridge to get to Greece, which for the battle coming up. Uh, have you all ever heard of the movie 300? This is the battle that this is referring to. So anyway, he has to have a bridge to get there. And before he could use the bridge, it was destroyed by a storm. And Xerxes gets so mad that he gathers all his engineers up and he cuts all their heads off. Uh, and then he also was mad at the water and demanded that the water be lashed 300 times for its insubordination. And then he sent soldiers to throw shackles into the water to bind it and to stab the waves with red-hot iron. So we can kind of see this guy's a little irrational and crazy. All right, in chapter 2, about four years had passed since the king had banished his queen, and Xerxes has finally had time to get over it. He's not mad anymore, and he remembers his queen and what had been decreed. So somebody read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. Lydia. Abated. He remembered Vashti and what and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officer officers in all the provinces of this kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to to Haman and Susa and Sidai under the custody of Okay, so it says that all these women are taken to the harem. So what's a harem? Anybody know what a harem is? Basically, that's a house where the king keeps all his wives and concubines. Um, Xerxes has many wives, but he only has one queen. So we're about to have a kingdom-wide beauty contest. And John MacArthur even suggests that, or suggested that there were about 25 million women in this kingdom. So they have 25 million women to choose from. And it says, out of all these women, they choose 400 virgins, and they were taken to the palace. And these were the most beautiful women in the kingdom. And during this beauty contest, we're about to meet two more of our four main characters. We're going to meet Esther and Mordecai. They are descendants of the original Jewish captives who were brought to, the, brought to Babylon about a century earlier. So this is about 100 years after they were brought to Babylon. Uh, Esther is an orphan, and her cousin, Mordecai, actually raises her, and he's about 15 years older than she is. And uh, let's see, verse 7 t uh, tells us that Esther was lovely and beautiful. So again, she's very, 
This, and it also says that he, she has a beautiful figure, so she's easy on the eyes. She's very attractive. And she very quickly finds favor with the eunuchs and eventually the king. Uh, she didn't go unnoticed by the king's servants. She was taken and put into custody of the eunuch in charge of the harem. When they came to the palace, they started a year-long beautification process. So from the time that they get taken and put into the custody of the eunuchs, it takes a year before they go before the king. Uh, the virgins, let's see, the virgins were to look as beautiful as possible and smell as good as possible. And they were trained on how to act when they were around royalty. At this time, verses 10 and 11 tells us that she had not yet made her people or her kindred known because Mordecai told her not to tell anybody. Um, it's crazy that she is the queen, but she still listens to Mordecai because he was the one who raised her. And every day Mordecai would walk in front of the court of the harem to see how Esther was doing. So the, the way the contest is about to go, we've got 12 months of primping, and the young women would go to the king looking as good as possible. Verse 14 of chapter 2 tells us that in the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return. So she would not go before the king again. Now this is for all the, the virgins. So, so again, you wouldn't go before the king unless you were asked by name. In verse 16, Esther was taken before the king, and we're going to see what the king thinks about her. Somebody read verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. Emma? All right, so out of all these women, remember, 25 million women down to 400. Out of the 400, she's chosen. Uh, and she's chosen to be queen. And we re remember that Esther is a Jewish orphan of an exiled people. So, again, these people were exiled. And now this is after the exile where the Jewish people were allowed to go back home. But they stayed in Babylon. So, again, she's an orphan. She's part of an exiled people, and she's given the highest position of any woman in the world at that time. She has been elevated to queen. Um, so this is a coincidence, right? That, you know, can y'all already see how kind of God's working through this? We've got a Jewish orphan who's from a captive people who has now been elevated to queen. All right. Um, so there's a greater power at work here. In verses 19 through 23 of chapter 2, the story is about to get interesting. Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate, and he discovers a plot to kill the king. He gets word to Esther. She tells King Xerxes in the name of Mordecai, and it was investigated and found to be true, and those servants were hanged. Now, when y'all think of hanged, what do y'all think? So it says they were actually hanged on gallows. So what do you think? Most of us would think if they're hanged, it's a rope around your neck, right? This was not how they were hanged. Uh, this was pretty gruesome. And so 
basically what a gallow is, is just a big tree. I think gallow stands for tree, right? It's just a big stick, and it's what's called impaled. I'm not going to go into detail what impaled is, but it's pretty gruesome. So that's how these two guys were killed after they plotted against the king. Uh, let me see. I lost my spot. All right, so anyway, so the servants were found, or found guilty. They were hanged. And this event was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai saved the king's life, and they write it down. So in other words, Mordecai was at the right place at the right time. Esther just happened to be queen, let the king know, and the king's uh, life is spared. It's another coincidence, right? So now we've got Mordecai saving the king's life, Esther's queen. Y'all, can y'all kind of see how things are being worked out here? Um, so why would they record Mordecai's actions in the Chronicles after he saved the king's life? Y'all got a guess? Y'all think that the king might want to reward him for saving his life? Uh, so every king knew that these kinds of things needed to be rewarded and this loyalty needed to be rewarded just as much as disloyalty needed to be punished. So the guys who plotted to kill the king, they were punished and killed and hung on the gallows. All right, in chapter 3, we meet the last of our four main characters, and his name is Haman. Haman was a man who had been exalted by the king. He was a Persian man who had been lifted above all the other princes, all the other royal officials, and Haman was an Agagite. Do y'all remember anything about the Agagites or King Agag that we, went, we covered back in 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Chronicles? y'all remember anything about that? All right, anyway. So, and it says that he's an Agagite several times through the book, and this is kind of a key to the whole story. Uh, it's a really big detail. And this is the origin of Haman's hatred for the Jewish people. So, again, Haman, or yeah, he is a Gagite. So, to find out what a Gagite is, we're going to go back to the book of Exodus. When the Israelites left Egypt, this was, happened almost a thousand years earlier. When they came out of Egypt, they were attacked by the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were descendants of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob. So what's important about Jacob? Y'all know who Jacob is? No. That's Joseph. So Jacob was the son of Isaac. So we've got Abraham, who God made the promise with Abraham. We've got Isaac, then we've got Jacob and Esau. Does anybody remember what Jacob's name was changed to? Israel. So this is God's people. They're actually attacked by the descendants of his brother, the Amalekites. And because the Amalekites attacked the Jews, God cursed them. So again, 400 years after that, we come to King Saul. So do y'all remember what King Saul was supposed to do and he didn't do? Why God, you know, he lost favor in God's eyes. Kill them all. Who was he supposed to kill? All the Amalekites, right? Who does he let live? King Agag. All right. So, because, and then after king, he let King Agag live, Samuel comes in and does something. What does Samuel do? I like he says he hacks Agag to pieces. That's pretty brutal, too. So, 
So we see this in 1 Samuel and we see it in the Chronicles as well. Um, so Saul was supposed to kill King Ag Agag, but he let him live. Samuel kills him. So Haman is an Agagite. He is a descendant of King Agag. And this Jewish guy, Samuel, is the one who killed the king. Like, so this is his ancestor, and a Jewish guy kills him. Haman knows his family history. And to make things even better, Mordecai is a descendant of Kish, a Benjamite. Do y'all remember who was a descendant of Kish, a Benjamite? We just talked about him. He was a king. His name is Saul. So here we got a descendant of Saul and a descendant of Agag. Um, so this is a deep family feud, and it's been going on for 550 years. So again, Haman's rage and anger for the Jewish people goes all the way back to that. <clears throat> and it says, the feud really takes off in chapter 3. I'd like for somebody to read verses 6 through, or I'm sorry, 1 through 6 of chapter 3. Anybody? Anybody? Josh? <laughs> All right, after these things, King Ahasuerus magnified Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agai, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate were bowing down and prostrating themselves before Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow down or prostrate himself. So the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you trespass against the king's command? Now it happened when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Then Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down and prostrating himself before him, so Haman was filled with wrath. But he despised in his eyes to send sent forth his hand against Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Alright, so again, Haman's a pretty important guy. He's been elevated uh, in, under King Xerxes to a high position. Everybody is supposed to bow and pay him honor and respect. And there's this guy, Mordecai, who doesn't do it. So again, he already doesn't like Jewish people. And then he finds out Mordecai is a Jew. Mordecai is not honoring him like he thinks he should. So he's like, I'm going to come up with a plan to kill Mordecai. But not only just Mordecai, we're going to kill all the Jews. And, like, and in the Bible it says that he's going to kill all the Jews, the ones that he even going back to Jerusalem. He's going to kill everybody. He wants to kill all of them. But, again, he, he knows that he can't just kill Mordecai because Mordecai's family, the Jewish people, they would come after Haman and kill him for killing Mordecai. Uh, so Haman goes to the magicians and he gets them to cast lots to come up with the perfect day to kill all the Jewish people. It's a, it's a genocide. Uh, somebody read verses 8 through 11 of chapter 3. So that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. 
If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they might put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from, the, from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. How far does that? Eleven. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So here the king gives him basically the power of the king. So Haman can write anything he wants to do, stamp it with the king's ring, and it's law. Um, so after this, Haman gets the scribes to write an edict. Again, an edict is a law that cannot even be changed by the king. <clears throat> And he, he, all right, so he writes the edict that on the day the magician had cast lots for that, you know, depicted the day when they would kill the Jews, basically a genocide. And it says when the edict went out to all the provinces, it caused mass confusion. So here again, he sends this thing out to every, all his kingdom in everybody's language. And it says on this day, we're basically going to kill all the Jews. So the Jews see this, they get wind of it, and it scares them. And then now there's a mass confusion going on. So in chapter 4, I would like somebody to read verse 3 for me. Ava? Verse 3 of chapter 4. There was a great mourning among the Jewish people in the every province. Province. All right, it says they lamented, they weeped, they were fasting. Lamenting is like deep. How would you describe lamenting? Uh, to lament is to be sorrowful all over. Yeah. So it's a deep sorrow, okay? So they find this out, they lament, or they're lamenting, they, they, put in, they dress in sackcloth, put ashes on their head. And it says when Mordecai heard of this edict, he tore his clothes and he dressed in sackcloth and he put ashes on his head. He, and it says he mourned openly at the thought of the genocide of the Jewish people. So he's out in the streets mourning openly. Uh, and the Jewish people are his people. So not he's mourning for himself and for his people. And so do y'all think that Haman is doing this for payback all the way from the death of King Agag? his ancestor, or he may be mad at Mordecai because Mordecai's not bowing to him, bowing to him and showing, showing him honor. I think those are some of the reasons. All the above. Well, actually, there's something bigger going on here. Satan is involved and has always tried to get rid of God's chosen people from the very beginning all the way up till this point. And he continues to do this. Um, Tim even talked about in his sermon this last Sunday that Satan was still trying to get rid of God's people in uh, Acts chapter 5. Uh, Satan was trying to put a stop to God's purpose of redemption on their behalf. Who eventually redeems God's people? Jesus. Jesus. All right. So God has a purpose of redemption and he fulfills that through Jesus. Can y'all think of anybody present day who tried to get rid of the Jewish people, a genocide of the Jewish people? Huh? Who? 
Yeah, Hitler. So up to, I mean, even, you know, how long ago was that? 70 years ago or so, maybe longer than that. You know, so this is still going on today. All right, so in verse 4, Esther sends clothes to Mordecai, uh, so he would take off the sackcloth, but he refused. It was, he couldn't go into the court in sackcloth. He was mourning openly. Uh, Esther had not yet heard about the edict, so she sends her servants to find out why Mordecai is mourning. And Mordecai tells Esther through her servants that Haman, or what Haman had done, and he sent her a copy of the edict. In verse 8, he asked Esther to go before the king to beg for his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. But this is not an easy task. Uh, we're going to read in verse 11 why this is not easy. Somebody want to read verse 11 for me? Emma? Huh? Chapter 4, yes. Provinces. So Mordecai asked her to go before the king to plead for her people. Um, what happens if you go before the king if you're not called? You die. Unless he raises his golden scepter, then you don't die. So she's kind of scared uh, a little bit. And it also says that he hasn't even seen Esther in 30 days. All right. So, like, again, Mordecai, I mean, not Mordecai. Uh, Xerxes, King Xerxes, has many wives, many concubines, hadn't even seen his queen in 30 days. Um, so anyway, she was afraid to go before the king, and you know why, she might die. Um, and the king is also irrational. Uh, let's remember what he did to Vashti back in chapter 1 for not doing what he told her. He basically banished her. But if Esther goes to him without being called, she could be killed. But Mordecai tells Esther to be brave. Let's read verses 13 and 14 of chapter 4. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time and believe in deliverance will rise from the Jews from so has anybody ever heard that before for such a time as this this is kind of the you know I wouldn't say the most famous verse in the Bible but one of them so he tells Esther um, to be brave uh, in that even if you don't go to the king just because you're the queen, you're Jewish, the edict says, you know, kill all the Jewish people. So she's not going to be saved if she doesn't do anything, if that makes sense. So, and it also says that if she does nothing, God will still send deliverance from somewhere else. 
the covenant of God with Israel to bless and sustain and preserve them. Um, so that's the promise that God has made to his people. Let's see, Mordecai tells her, if you do nothing, God will deliver them another way, but you and your family will not survive. I just said that a few seconds ago. And it says, and then he says, who knows why an orphan girl was chosen to be queen for such a time as this. In this, he confirms divine sovereignty. Who remembers what sovereignty is? We just went over it Sunday. Like Josh screamed it at y'all for like 10 minutes. Huh? Sovereignty. Control. Oh my gosh. All right, so, so again, he confirms, he confirms divine sovereignty. In this, he also affirms his confidence in the revelation of God that he would preserve his people. He also knew that if she did nothing, that she and Mordecai and a lot of Jewish people could die. So again, if the queen does nothing, a lot of people could die. In verse 16, Esther, she thinks about it, and she goes and she... And Mordecai asked her to, or she asked Mordecai to gather all the Jews and fast for her for three days. And after this, she would go to the king. So they're going to fast for three days. And usually when you fast, what do you do? You pray at the same time. So this was three days of fasting and praying. So she says, I'm going to go before the king. And if I die, I die. Uh, she was prepared to lose her life to try to protect her people. All right, so now, let's see, I'm sorry. Now we're going to start chapter 5, and it's time for Esther to go before the king. Can you imagine how she's feeling? Nervous, Nervous scared, uncertain. She doesn't know what's about to happen. Uh, she may be killed for going to see the king. And in, in verse 3, you see the king's response when he approaches her. Um, he does extend the golden scepter. And she goes and she touches the tip of the scepter. Let's see. And the king not only tells her to come in, he kind of takes it a step further. And he says, come in, queen. He's, she's very beautiful. He's in love with her. He's taken by her beauty. Uh, he says, come in. What do you want? What's your request? He says, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, again, he's very rich, very powerful. And he says, I will give you half of what I got. What do you want? Um, but all she wants is to put on a feast for King Xerxes and Haman. So the king gives her what he wants. He says, go gather Haman. Come on, let's, get, let's, let's do this feast. So read verses 5 through 8 of chapter 5, somebody. Bella? Chapter 3. Chapter three. I can't read. <laughs> I'm, I'm dyslexic. You got this, come on. Five verses five through eight. Five what? Five. <laughs> chapter five. Five through eight. Five through eight. On the third day. Chap chapter five. Five verse five through eight. Oh, wait, I see it. Okay. Wait, no, I don't. What is this? Eight. No, wait. Verses five <laughs> through eight. The this is, this is, okay. Haman.
You just want me to finish it? No, I want to. Yes, please. Uh, this is painful. All right, keep going. Verse through verse eight. Work. Thank you. All right. All right. Uh, lesson. So anyway, we see here that she prepares a feast for Haman and the king. The king asks her again, what do you want? Even up to the half the kingdom, I will give it to you. And she responds, let's do this again tomorrow. I'd like to have another feast. For you and Haman, and then I will let my request be made known then. So, we already know that Haman's a very, very powerful guy. He wants everybody to bow to him. He's kind of prideful. So, y'all think that Haman is loving eating with the king and queen? Uh, he's been exalted above all the other servants, and the king agreed with his request to get rid of all the Jews, and now he is being invited for a second time to eat a feast with the king and queen. And there was no higher honor than eating with the king and queen back in that day. So Haman is now walking. He's got kind of a big head. And he's going home to brag to his friends and his family. And he sees Mordecai at the king's gate. And guess what Mordecai is doing? Not bowing to him. So he's filled with rage uh, so he already wants to kill Mordecai, he wants to kill the Jewish people. He's mad, madder than he's ever been at Mordecai right now because he's still not bowing to him. And when he gets home, he starts bragging, and he also starts to whine, again, about Mordecai not bowing to him. So him and his family come up with an idea to build the gallows to hang Mordecai on the next day. Now, again, what the gallows are, it's a terrible way to die. Uh, so th that night, Haman slept soundly thinking of what he was going to do Mordecai. And then in chapter 6, while Haman was sleeping soundly, King Xerxes is not sleeping. He can't sleep. Um, so what he does is he asks his eunuchs to go get the chronicles to be read to him. And I would only guess that he's doing getting the chronicles so maybe it can bore him back to sleep. But whatever the reason... They start reading to him. And out of all the chronicles they could have chosen, what do you think they choose? What did Mordecai do? Saved his life. So they actually start reading about Mordecai saving his life. Uh, in verses 2 and 3, Xerxes is like, did we ever honor him? You know, these things need to be honored so people will continue to be loyal to the king. And his servants say, we haven't done anything for him. Now this is five years after... Um, Mordecai exposed the plot and the king's life was spared. And King Xerxes wants to make it right and he wants to reward him. 
So the next morning, Haman's all, he's on cloud nine, he's happy, he's about to go ask the king, hey, is there, can I get your permission to kill Mordecai? But before he can ask the king to kill Mordecai, the king stops him and he asks him a question. Somebody read verse 6 of chapter 6. Uh, Amelia. So Haman's sitting there thinking to himself, the king just asked, you know, what do I need to do for the man that I would like to honor? And Haman's thinking the whole time, like, this is great. Like, the king's going to honor me. Uh, I've been exhausted. I mean, exhausted. I've been exalted. And I've had these feasts with the king and queen. And now the king's going to honor me. So what does he tell him to do? He tells him to go all out. He, he says, King Goala, he says, put this man on your horse, let him wear your robe, and have one of your princes lead him around saying that this is the man the king wants to honor. So that's what Haman tells the king, and the king, King Xerxes says, this is a great idea. Go do all these things for Mordecai. I leave nothing undone. Go do all this for Mordecai. So Haman's kind of shocked. He's probably feeling a little humiliation, uh, maybe some shame, rage. Because he was on his way to kill Mordecai, and now he has to lead Mordecai around honoring, honoring him. So this was not the day, this was not how Haman uh, had seen his day going. So Haman, after this is over, he parades uh, Mordecai around. He goes home and he pouts. Uh, he's disgraced, and he's looking for comfort from his family and his friends, but he doesn't get it. Verse 13 says, when he told his wife all that happened, she said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but you will surely fall before him. Again, he's looking for comfort from his wife. He doesn't get it. You know, he woke up this morning. He woke up or the morning of that day. He woke up. He's going. He's happy. He's been, you know, again, he's eating with the king and queen. All these things are going for him. Now, he leads Mordecai around. He goes home. His wife says that you're going to fall before Mordecai. So, Haman's a little shocked. He's a little confused at what his wife is telling him. And on the same day, so this is still the same day that he, was, that he had the feast, the first feast. And, uh, or no, I'm sorry. This is after the first feast. But it's on the day that he's going to go ask permission to kill Mordecai. So on this day, uh, he has to get back to the palace for the second feast with the king and queen. All right, so chapter 7, they are at the second feast, and the king once again asks Esther, what is your wish? What do you want? Even up to half the kingdom. So he's still saying, I will give you half the kingdom. Whatever, whatever you want, queen, I'll give it to you. Um, somebody read verses 3 and 4. Of chapter 7, Ethan. You said 3 and 4, right? Yes, of chapter 7. Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. 
Okay, so again, well, how do y'all think Xerxes reacts to this? Huh? Well, he can't believe what he's hearing. Like, she's saying, my people, the queen is saying, my people have been sold to be killed. So he's like, who in the world is going to plot against my queen? So in the next verse, he, he looks at her and he says, who is this? Or who is he? Where is he? Again, who in the world is going to plot against uh, the queen? And at this time, you can, how do y'all think Haman's reacting? He's like, there's no way the queen is a Jewish, or Jewish. Like, she can't be a Jew. There's no way. So he's probably getting a little scared at this time. So while he's sitting there thinking this, Esther's pointing at him, and she's saying, this wicked Haman, this is the man who has plotted to kill the Jewish people, a, a genocide, get rid of all of them. And the king is beyond mad. Now, again, he's a little irrational. He's probably been drinking a little bit. And now he is mad and he goes outside to the, to the palace garden. And he might even be a little embarrassed because he let this guy Haman trick him into signing this edict to get rid of the Jewish people. Haman had misrepresented the people, uh, Israelites, uh, you know, to the king. And, and he's signed this edict to kill all of them. Um, and this edict also include, included the murder of his queen. So while the king is in the garden, Haman is begging Esther for mercy. He's down on, his hand, or down on his hands and knees. He's reaching his hands out saying, please spare my life. He's begging for mercy. And the king walks back in. Now he's blinded by fury and he mistakes Haman's plea for mercy for assault. So in verse 8, he's like, are you even going to assault my queen while I'm here? Um, so then one of the king's servants is in there and he reminds the king, or he tells the king, hey, Haman built this gallow to kill Mordecai on. So what do you think they did? They gathered Haman up and they went and hanged, Morde I mean, hanged Haman on the very gallows that he made for Mordecai. So, what a day for Haman. He goes for, he wakes up that day, he's exalted, I keep saying exhausted, exalted. He's at the right hand of the king, he's got the king's ear, he's, he's a very powerful man, and by the end of the day, he's executed. So, that's one heck of a day for him. So, in chapter 8, all that Haman had, so again, he was a very powerful, rich man, all that he had was given to the queen. And guess who the queen gives it to? Mordecai. Mordecai. So now Mordecai ends up with all that Haman had. The king exalted Mordecai and he became great in Persia. Uh, do y'all remember what an edict is? Remember we talked about that earlier? What? It's a law that cannot be changed even by the king. So what was the edict that Haman wrote? Kill all the Jews, all of them, from not even just like not just the Jews in their kingdom, but all the way back to Jerusalem. Kill all of them, every one of them. So this is an edict that can't be changed by the king. So Mordecai, you know, he's been exalt, exalted now. He's um, been given everything that Haman has. Uh, he is given the or the king Xerxes gives Mordecai his ring. 
and says, write a new edict. Uh, so he writes one, and his edict says that all the Jews can fight back and they can and annihilate anyone who comes against them. So any of their enemies that rises up against them on that day that Haman had chosen, they can fight back and kill them. Um, so he writes it, he signs the king's name, and he stamps it. So now this is law. Uh, so read verses 3 and 4 of chapter 9, somebody for me. Uh, I got you. I got you. Casey? Yes. All of the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the world silver administrators aided the Jews because they were afraid of Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace, and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. So Mordecai is gaining power. Okay? And it says that all these other people, the governors, the satraps, all those people feared Haman. And it was because he had risen to such prominence and they knew how he felt about his people. He was going to do anything he could to protect his people. And it would soon get out that the queen is Jewish. So again, he couldn't undo the first edict, but he could write a new one. And he could also, in this new edict, he could tell all the people in the kingdom who weren't Jewish, like, you don't have to kill the Jewish people. You can actually even team up with them if you want to. Um, so you don't have to participate in this edict. And, you know, that was written back in chapter 8. So the day has come, and the Jewish people rose up, and they struck down their enemies. So anybody who rose up against the Jewish people on that day that Haman had picked, they killed them. All right? They were able to fight back, and they killed 75,000 of their enemies on that day. <clears throat> and again, the king backed them. The governors backed them, so they had help. And it says, so... This is the day to remember, not for the reason that Haman wanted, but this day, March 7th of 473 B.C., established a festival that is still celebrated today. So there's a Jewish holiday that they still celebrate today called Purim. I don't know if I said that right, but anyway, and it's, that word, it's, Purim is from the Hebrew word of lots because Haman cast lots to determine the day on which he would kill the Jews. Uh, and it's a feast of triumph, celebration, and the care of God. So it, today in this uh, festival, like, you know, in 2022, when they're reading through the story of Esther and they mention Haman's name, they actually boo every time that his name is mentioned. And um, so long after Haman was hanged, Mordecai and Esther continued to flourish in the royal house. And King Xerxes exalt exalted Mordecai to second in command. So now Mordecai is right under the king, very powerful. Uh, and Xerxes also continued to love his queen. And against all odds, Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews had been spared. And not just spared, but elevated. So somebody read chapter 10 for me. All right, listen. Not 
For Mordecai the Jew was next and became received and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his Okay, so again, Mordecai has high honor. He's been elevated, second in command. So, where is God in this? No, now, God's name was not mentioned one time, so where do we see God in this story? By the Jews' lives being spared. But how did we get to that point? What happened before that? Making Esther queen. Making Esther queen. Esther, queen. So here again, an orphan girl who was made queen. Um, God is clearly the author of this story, right? We can see his hand throughout. So he put Esther where she needed to be. Mordecai was where he needed to be. Now what did Mordecai find out? He found out about the plot to kill the king and save his life. Uh, it just so happens that when Xerxes can't sleep, he gets the Chronicles um, they read the story of Mordecai, and he honors Mordecai. Okay? So you can see where God is in all of this. So I've got a few things. Again, I know I've been reading this whole time, but I'm going to read a little bit more of how we can see Jesus and how this points back to God. So it says, God's sovereign work. Again, what sovereign? Uh, control. control. So God's sovereign work is seen throughout the book of Esther. Though some people... Balk at admitting this book's significance, noting that the name of God is never mentioned, it is clear that the unnamed author was well aware of God's providence from start to finish. As God has always done, he proves that no situation, no matter how broken, is beyond his reach or his influence. God is always at work orchestrating his providential hand in turning hopelessness, in, or turn, yeah, turning hopelessness into hopefulness. At the time that, at that time, God, or when God seemed distant, even absent from his people, the author reveals that God was still at work. Even in the very center of the Persian kingdom, he protected a remnant of people whom he would use to accomplish his purpose of bringing glory to his name. God did not forget those Israelites who remained in foreign lands. They too knew God's gracious protection uh, and experienced his mercy and testified to his greatness among the nations. God sent Jesus like Esther at a particular point in history to accomplish his sovereign plan. Paul revealed that God sent Jesus at just the right time to redeem fallen humanity. That's in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Though both Esther and Jesus were put in harm's way, God used them both to fulfill his masterful plan in spite of opposition and danger. Esther's boldness and courage are emblematic of the faith that comes to those who trust in Jesus and rest in the sure fact that God will always accomplish his mission. Uh, Mordecai advised Queen Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. That was back in uh, chapters 4, verse 8. And likewise, in each struggle, trial, and pain, believers have an advocate with the Father. Who's their advocate with the Father? How do we have access to the Father? Jesus. Jesus. Um, it says he's, in, he's the righteous one. Every presented request is an opportunity for Jesus to intercede. Like Esther, Jesus was prepared to die for God's people, and he did die on the cross for our sins, and by doing this, he saves God's people. Esther did not know 
if she was going to die or not. Remember, she goes in to see the king, and before she went to see the king, she says, if I die, I die. So she's unsure. She doesn't know what's going to happen. But Jesus knew he was going to be beaten and hung on the cross, and he still did it. The book also reminds us that God was caring for his people, Israel, and fulfilling his promise to Abraham, the promise that he made back in Genesis uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, says every enemy that has ever tried to exterminate the Jewish nation has been defeated. Mordecai comes closest to identifying God's work behind uh, the scenes of history on behalf of his chosen people when he tells Esther, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jew, or for the Jews from another place. And that's found in Esther uh, chapter 4, verses 14. It says, God has made an everlasting covenant with his people, and he will keep his part of the agreement. And it says that he, will, that he would um, give relief and deliverance even if she didn't do it. So who would be the ultimate deliverer? Jesus. So again... And I got a, another question for you. How is Jesus like Xerxes? Can we make that comparison? Think about it. He's nothing like Xerxes. That was a trick question. Okay, so Jesus is not like Xerxes. Xerxes is violent, he's prideful, he's irrational, and he thinks that he is a god. He had a god complex. He was so rich, so powerful, he thought he was a god. And Xerxes eventually dies. All right, Jesus is loving, he's humble, and he actually is God. And he is the ultimate king whose kingdom will last forever. And guess what, guys? He's still alive. He, does, he didn't, or he did die, but he rose again, and he's still alive. So Xerxes died and stayed dead. So that's all I have. Um, oh, got something out of this. I enjoyed this study. If y'all get the opportunity, go back. Read the book. Read the book, then watch VeggieTales. But read the book. It's a good story. Okay. So let's pray, and then I'll be done. Lord, we come to you right now, and we thank you uh, for the opportunity to come and uh, worship you tonight, Lord. And uh, I, I thank you for the opportunity to get to speak. Lord, I thank you for uh, allowing me to do this. Um, Lord, and again, I ask that you just... Uh, Bring back to these kids' memories, um, Lord, what we studied tonight, Lord, and, and how you were found in all of Scripture, Lord, even in a book that um, doesn't even mention you one time, that you were still found in that book, Lord. We can see you all over the book. Lord, again, I ask that you'll just be with these uh, kids as they go back to school and whatever it is that they're doing this week, Lord, that you'll help them to glorify your name, Lord. And um, again, we just thank you for bringing us all here safely, and we ask that you get us uh, all home safely, Lord, in your name. Amen.